Well, welcome to our podcast on advanced aspects of LP little A. I'm Dr. Robert Superco, and we're honored today to have Dr. Sam Sotiris Tsumikas participate in this podcast, particularly on the advanced aspects. Dr. Tsumikas is a cardiologist who holds the position of professor of medicine and director of vascular medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's worked extensively with the Dan Steinberg, Joe Whitsum team with a particular focus on LP little a and of interest that we'll find out in a minute is he started the first LP little a clinic dedicated to people with that particular problem. He's also uh, has an extensive academic experience. He's associate editor of the journal of the American college of cardiology and has published over 250 articles and books. Recently, he was the lead author on the 2018 National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Working Group document on LP little a. And just recently, on November 21st this year, he published a groundbreaking article in JAMA Cardiology that had to do with aortic valve stenosis and the progression of stenosis. So as you can see, he's on the cutting edge of applying all these scientific discoveries to practical clinical care. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Tsumikas, and I have to smile at this point because I, I hope I said your first name correctly. The head of our cardiology group here is Soteria Karahelios, and she's Greek, obviously, and she told me the correct pronunciation was Soteris. Did I get that right? Yes. Hi, Robert. Soteris is more the formal name. Soteris is sort of the short version. I got nicknamed Sam Way back uh, when my great uncle was the first one to come here in 1912, so that's kind of the uh, the Sam part of it. But you did great with the name. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was nervous about that. So let me start with some of the questions um, that I'd like to address, because you're a, a fully trained, board certified cardiologist, yet you focused on this area of LP little a. What was it that prompted you and was so interesting to you about that? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, we in cardiology, as you know, uh, focus a lot with acute disease and um, particularly with vascular biology. And I've always had an interest uh, in vascular biology, uh, even when I was a resident. And one of my goals when I was, uh, I guess, a young whippersnapper was to kind of marry interventional cardiology with vascular biology. And I'm actually trained as an interventional cardiologist and practiced that uh, for many years until this year, actually. Uh, And what we would see in the cath lab is, of course, lots of young patients with acute disease and a lot of vascular disease that was sort of unexplained by typical risk factors. And so that was one of my influences. The other one was because I was such a rich uh, institution for understanding pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, I actually did a two-year fellowship with Joe Whitstam um, in sort of molecular medicine and, and atherosclerosis, uh, along with two years of general cardiology fellowship and a year of interventional cardiology. So I took all of that experience and put it into practice both at the clinical level and at the research level. And one of the things that we've noticed as we were kind of working through a variety of, you know, both mechanistic and imaging studies is that, um, you know, a lot of these young patients were coming to the cath lab. But in addition, and this is really a case of serendipity, we we were developing an assay that we'll talk about a little bit later on oxidized phospholipids. And the initial idea was that it would be an assay that measured minimally oxidized LDL. 
we were doing this in the late 90s. And uh, we developed the assay and we started doing some correlations. Uh, and we noticed that instead of this level of oxidized phospholipids correlating with uh, LDL cholesterol in the circulation, it correlated much more strongly with lipoprotein little a. And so that led to a whole series of studies that really has, I think, established that um, that the pathogenesis of LP little a is driven in large part through its content of oxidized phospholipids. So that, of course, uh, required to generate expertise in lipoprotein little a, uh, and of course, not just at the clinical level, but at the more research level. And of course, we, we then did a very large number of studies to understand LP little a and oxidized phospholipids. And a lot of those initially were driven by my experience in acute disease. So we did a lot of PCI, ACS studies. And then over the next decade, we slowly transitioned that into epidemiology studies, and then of course now with therapy. So it's been quite an interesting ride to, to kind of you know, start at a level of the field when it wasn't as well accepted, uh, but we always thought it was important. And I think the lesson here is that you know, when you find something that looks important, uh, even through those serendipity, you don't just let it go, you follow it, and here we are, I guess, 15, 20 years later, where we now are close to having a therapy for patients at high LP little a. So a lot of influences, but a lot of interesting aspects of this that, that are unique to, uh, to this particular life and protein. Well, that's a great message for young physicians, too. And, and one of the things you did that I find really interesting is start a clinic that was specifically focused around LP little a. Could you share with the listeners a little bit about what you do in the clinic? Yes. Of course, as, as you well know, you've been part of this field for many years. Uh, when you have a lipid clinic, uh, you see all kinds of patients, including high LP little a. And, um, you know, as we were developing a lot of our work on LP little a, even before the genetics of LPA were established, um, we were uh, collecting blood samples from not only our own cath lab and hospitals, but also in clinics, but also from a lot of large studies. And what I was noticing is that a fairly significant proportion of patients had elevated LP little a levels. And, you know, back then, people thought it was a rare, you know, occasional thing you find in somebody young that you can't explain anything else. But as I was going through my general cardiology clinic, an interventional clinic, I was just measuring LP routinely in everybody. I'm noticing about 50% of my patients had elevated levels based on our criteria in the hospital, which was, you know, an LPA mass less than 29 milligrams per deciliter was considered normal. And I'm finding 50% of patients are above that. And of course, that didn't come into the clinical milieu from the perspective of what, you know, what's causing the disease, what do we do about this? And with all the revolution in um, the genetics of LP little a, and then realizing how common it is that probably one out of three patients on average, uh, and my clinic is a little self-selected, but on average, if you look at cardiology clinics, about one in three patients have elevated levels. It became obvious that this is a much bigger risk factor than anybody has appreciated. In fact, it's likely more common than elevated LDL. And so I said, okay, well, what, you know, how are we going to deal with all of this? And LPA is unusual among lipoproteins because if, if any lipoprotein has a prothrombotic effect, it's LP little a because it's highly homologous to plasminogen. And of course, then the uh, data came out that LP little a is involved in aortic stenosis, which we'll talk about. So I felt that as a cardiologist, 
you know, this would be ideal to kind of put kind of the whole pathophysiology and clinical care of these patients under a roof within a cardiology setting so that we can deal with both thrombotic issues that a lot of these patients have and also the aortic valve issues as well as the atherosclerosis issues. So I felt it was sort of ideal for for me with my background and some of the work we're doing at the, at the research level to organize this kind of clinical uh, care under an LPA clinic. So we formed this in 2014. And uh, of course, by definition, you have to have an L elevated LP little A level to be seen there because that clinic only sees high LPA patients. And the clinic is full. Uh, we get a lot of referrals, particularly now as a lot more testing is occurring. And, you know, we have several kinds of patients in there and we have kind of the high risk primary prevention patients uh, they get referred, but we also have, you know, the 42-year-old who had a massive MI, and lo and behold, somebody happened to check an LPA uh, and is referred. Now, one advantage we have at UCSD since we've been working uh, in this area for many years is we've trained all of the fellows, including the interventional fellows, to check LPA little a. So they have a high index of suspicion now. So we often will get an LPA level in the cath lab when somebody shows up if we believe, you know, they have LPA-driven disease. And because of this, we're finding a very large number of patients that otherwise would be missed. Uh, so, uh, you know, we also have a, a strong TAVR program. So we're, we're screening those patients. Pretty much every single patient that has a TAVR or is, is getting worked up for a TAVR has an LPA level. Um, and what we've shown in the last year or so, we tr uh, sorry, the, the number of patients getting an LPA level at UCSD has gone up sixfold. Mm. And so that's been driven partly by internal medicine and other doctors, but also within cardiology. So I think education uh, and that type of clinic really, I think, leads to catching some patients that otherwise would be missed. And of course, we see the whole gamut of patients that we see, you know, teenagers with MIs. We see patients that have venous thromboses. Uh, we see the garden variety atherosclerosis patients. And then we see some aortic stenosis patients. And we see a lot of young patients have very high coronary calcium scores uh, that otherwise, you know, would not be known what the etiology of that. And many of those have very high LPA levels. So I don't, you know, that kind of clinic is uh, an interesting concept. You don't have to take care of these patients in an LPA clinic. Uh, you can take care of them in a typical, um, you know, lipid clinic. It just so happened that this seemed to be the right thing to do for, for this kind of situation within our cardiology group. And because cardiologists in general are not as well uh, versed in LP little a as lipidologists, I thought it was a good educational forum for our fellows and also to kind of expand this beyond UCSD and really help these patients by having more cardiologists get involved uh, in this care of these patients. So I think what you said was the, the referral, the increase in referral was in large part because of education and what you've done in the community is, is that also true of the recent AHA-ACC guidelines at American Heart in November? They, they mention l little a but it's taken them 20 years to, to get there. And, and I have to mention people like um, uh, Carberg and Santika Markovina and Angela Scanner, who have spent their careers on this. And so why do you think it's taken so long to actually be recognized by the uh, AHA and ACC? Well, that's a great, great point. You know, we know that um, Europeans and Canadians were a year or two ahead of the ACCAHA, 
But, you know, the ACCHA, you know, a lot of their guidelines are focused on having multiple randomized trials or at least one or two and then having, uh, you know, multiple uh, series of evidence to put something in the guideline. And when, unfortunately, because of LPA hasn't had a therapy, we, there's no way you can up until recently do a trial. And so uh, this is an issue that uh, I think has inhibited uh, the ACCHA coming forward with something earlier but also, at this point, they really cannot ignore it any longer. The evidence is really overwhelming that alkazidol A is a risk factor, it's genetic, it's independent, and it's likely causal. And so I was very happy to see that they actually now put LPA in the guidelines as a what they call a risk modifier, meaning that uh, you know, if somebody, you're not sure what to do with a patient, um, and the sort of in-between in zone, and you check an alkazidol A and it's elevated, now you really have to think about being a lot more aggressive with what you can change. Now we don't have an approved therapy for LPA outside of apheresis in Germany, but you know you certainly can be a lot more stringent with everything else that could be triggered to disease. And until we get a specific LPA lowering therapy, uh, these patients can be you know treated with optimal care. Otherwise, for secondary prevention, mm -hmm. they just become part of their part of the, your uh, awareness that, hey, you know, you're not out of the woods yet if you haven't addressed their LPA levels. Good. Well, you know, one of the issues that came up in the European guidelines versus the American Canadians is uh, the method of LPA measurement and the units. And that that can confuse physicians and patients, uh, milligrams per DL versus nanomoles. Can you uh, shed some light on that? Yeah, and I think this is a very important point that we'll also need some addressing um, more formally uh, in the future. But, you know, LP little a uh, was initially uh, quantified as mass of the entire particle. And that mass of the entire particle is presented as milligrams per deciliter. Now, what I mean by mass of the entire particle is the APOA component, the APOB component, the phospholipid, the cholesterol, the cholesterol ester, um, any triglyceride that might be in there, and any carbohydrate that's part of the APOA moiety. All of that is what you get when you have LPA mass in milligrams per deciliter. Now, it sounds just fine when you first hear about it, but the issue is there's a lot of variability in how much of these components these patients have. And so you could be overestimating, underestimating the true risk of the particle if somebody has like a lot more cholesterol ester, for example, versus another patient. And of course, it doesn't really accurately reflect how many particles of APOA you have. Now, the alternative, which Dr. Markovina has been a champion of, and I give her a lot of credit for it, is to actually report units in molar concentration of APOA. So that means nanomoles per liter of APOA. So that way, if somebody has a small isoform versus a large one, but they have the exact same number of, iso of, of particles, you get the same reading. So that gets rid of all the other parts of APOA that's of LPA that's measured in the mass assay. And I think ultimately this should be the gold standard because it's going to be a more accurate measurement. There's a third method called LPA cholesterol, which really isn't well validated yet. Uh, but that measures the content of cholesterol only in this LPA mass. And so uh, that one, I think, doesn't have really good predictive value as of right now. So bottom line is this, that if you, you really should check what 
units your lab reports LP little a and make sure you understand if it's in milligrams per deciliter, whether it's being reported as mass of the whole particle or LPA cholesterol. Of course, if it's only LPA cholesterol, the measurement is going to be much lower in terms of the normal range. So say LPA cholesterol would be 0 to 10, LPA mass will be 0 to 30 for normal, and LPA molar concentration will be 0 to 75. Now, there's no true conversion factor, but just as a ballpark, if you want to convert one to the other, uh, you can multiply LPA mass by 2.5. So, for example, if your LPA mass is 30 in animals, it would be 75 nanomoles per liter to kind of interconvert just for, you know, ballparking it. You really can't do it uh, at the chemical level because you're comparing different things. So, so bottom line is most of the acid is going to be milligrams per deciliter or nanomoles per liter, and just pay attention to which one that is and what the units are and what the normal ranges are when you are uh, working up your patients for LPA mediated risk. Mm, that's actually fascinating. I, that's one of the best descriptions I've heard in a while. Let me switch a little bit to an area that I'm really excited about that you've done a lot of work in, which is the whole issue about aortic stenosis and oxidized phospholipids and in particular, the association with the rate of progression of AS with oxidized phospholipids. Is that something that you use in your clinic? Is that a practical use now? Yes. So, um, well, let me just take you back a smidgen. Just, to, just to, It's important for people to see where this came from. So we've known for a long time that LP little a is a risk factor for aortic stenosis, even back in the 1990s with the cardiovascular health study. But nobody really paid that much attention to it. And nobody, even now, thinks you can actually get a medical therapy for aortic stenosis. It's kind of like in the past, people would say, well, atherosclerosis is a, is a pipe full of junk. There's no way you can have any regression or any change. You have to have a plumbing issue. You know, it's a plumbing issue. And we know that's not the case. You know, it's an inflammatory disease. It's a lipid disease. You know, you, you can affect some of this if you catch it early enough. And so because of the issue of the same thing with aortic stenosis, there hasn't been much interest in risk factors because people are like, well, we really can't do anything about it. This was compounded by the failure of four statin trials where the LDL was lowered massively, like 50%, and there was no change in the progression of the narrowing of aortic stenosis. So in 2013, though, George Stanisoulis and, and that group published a very nice paper where they showed that the only gene associated with, with aortic valve calcification and aortic stenosis was, was the LPA gene. So, of course, we then said, well, if that's the case, then because the oxidized phospholipids are carried by LP little a, there ought to be an association with oxidized phospholipids. So we actually were able to find uh, blood samples from the astronomer trial, one of the failed statin trials using rosuvastatin, and we asked the question, well, in that trial, rosuvastatin had no effect on aortic stenosis, but we said maybe they were targeting the wrong molecule. Maybe the problem wasn't LDL that causes AS. Maybe it was LP little a and or oxidized phospholipids. And so the beauty of the astronomer was it had five-year data and a yearly echo, so you can actually get quantitative measurements of valve progression by measuring peak aortic valve velocity and averaging it over you know, a year, for example, over the four to five year follow-up. And so what we showed in that study is that, yes, indeed, not only is LP little a involved with aortic valve calcium, but if you have pre-existing aortic stenosis, you can actually predict the progression rate, which is about 60% higher if the LP is elevated. 
And then what we did is we measured oxidase phospholipids in that study and showed, lo and behold, these are also highly associated with it. So now we have five papers published where we link oxidase phospholipids in the plasma carried by LP little a and or APOB with progression of pre-existing aortic stenosis. And what we think is happening is this, that um, the aortic valve opens and closes, you know, every second, right? So there's always going to be some minor endothelial damage through a lifetime. When uh, the leaflet's uh, endothelial surface gets denuded, the LP little a can stick to them very tightly because LP little a has a lysine binding pocket on it, the APOA component. So it sticks to any, any surface that doesn't have intact endothelium. And it's very hard to actually then remove it. And what we think is happening is if you have high LP little a, you're more likely to have the LP stick to a denuded aortic valve leaflet. The LP little a is loaded with oxidized phospholipids and it carries them into the leaflet. Then what happens is the oxidase phospholipids get degraded into lysophosphatidic acid, which is known to be a procalcifying molecule. So what you end up doing is you're delivering a procalcifying molecule to the leaflet, and of course, then you get thickening of the leaflets, and along with the calcium, you get fibrosis and eventually aortic valve lesion. So the hypothesis looks pretty good that one of the drivers of AS of LPA is the content of oxidase phospholipids. And in the future, what we hope to ultimately do is have, you know, a couple of trials. One where we can lower LP little a and show if that reduces the progression of aortic stenosis. And two, maybe inhibit oxidase phospholipids uh, with an antibody, for example, and show that that actually also uh, reduces the progression of AS. And maybe at some point, um, you know, lo and behold, we maybe we can develop a medical therapy for aortic stenosis so that patients can avoid valve surgery when they're in the 80s, like it's currently happening with the TAVR uh, scenarios. I, I find this fascinating. And does it have a clinical application? In other words, um, if you have a patient with high open little a, do you auscultate more closely? Or if you have somebody with AES, you measure the open little a. And do you uh, obtain an echo more frequently in somebody with high phospholipids in AES? Right. So that's a great question. Uh, that was the second part of your question, which I neglected to answer. So thank you for, um, for uh, emphasizing that. In my own clinic, um, you know, if we see somebody with aortic stenosis uh, and, you know, we either get referrals or we have our own patients have AS in our clinic, um, we monitor them very carefully because we know that if they have high, AS, uh, high LPA, they're much more likely to progress. So you, you see them when they have a valve error, say 1.4, 1.5, a peak velocity of three and a half, and then you literally can just hear the murmur get louder uh, over the years, maybe two or three years. Um, so yes, so we do auscultate more. If we hear a change in the murmur, we're more likely to get an echo more frequently. Say instead of a, every year, we might do it every six months. And of course, we ask the patients carefully about symptoms because as you know, with AS, it, it progresses relatively slowly as far as progression goes, so that sometimes the patients change their lifestyle to accommodate their reduced functional capacity. So you, you can bring that out in them uh, if, you, if you know that they're, they're more likely to progress. For the oxidase phospholipid part, um, this assay is not clinically available yet, although we hope uh, Boston Heart Lab uh, will have this available clinically um, in early 2019. 
And we believe that will have an important role, not just in predicting cardiovascular disease, uh, but also in predicting the progression of aortic stenosis. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out uh, clinically. Of course, none of this stuff is in guidelines yet because the data is just emerging. So what I'm, what I'm giving you here is my own personal opinion, uh, and we'll wait and see how the field adapts to these novel biomarkers for this particular disease. Well, we're getting sort of near the end of our, our podcast here, but I have to ask you about one more topic, and that has to do with treatment. And for for many, many years, over 20 years, I've used nicotinic acid to try and suppress high open delay in patients with disease, and that's problematic. There are a number of issues with it. But uh, you and your colleagues are working on a, a brand-new therapeutic approach, the antisense oligonucleotides that I think is Absolutely fascinating. Can can you expound on that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, as part of our work uh, in in LP little a, we we have some animal models that express LP little a, and, and mice don't normally have LP little a. So we were fortunate to have these in the early 2000s, and so we did a lot of basic work with these models. And we're also lucky enough to be near Carlsbad, California, which is where Ionis Pharmaceuticals uh, has its. Um, his plan. So we we actually started collaborating, Joe and I, Joe Wisdom and myself started collaborating with Ionis 2006. We first showed that if you inhibit the ApoB component of LP little a with mifomersin, which is an antisense oligonucleotide that targets ApoB, you can reduce LP little a about 75%. The problem with that approach, though, however, was that since it doesn't affect ApoA, the liver of these mice kept making ApoA as a free protein and not attached to ApoB's LP little a. So we went back to the drawing board in about 2008 and 9, and along with our Ionis colleagues who did a lot of the, the work to develop these drugs, um, they made an antisense oligonucleotide to ApoA. And then we showed in our animal models, we can reduce that LPA level to about 85% in those models. So then we realized in 2011 that we had a potential therapy for this disease. <laughs> It's very hard to use small molecules in this disease because LP little a is not an enzyme. And if you use an antibody, you would have to uh, use very large doses, which I don't think would be safe or commercially viable. So the only way to really affect LP little a is to inhibit or shut down the factory that makes it, which is a hepatocyte. And that's what antisense technology does. It's a small nucleic acid-modified uh, drug that actually binds to the mRNA vapor away and prevents ApoA protein synthesis. So you basically shut down that particular part of the, of the functional uh, pathway. And so once we realized this worked very nicely in animal models, um, it's culminated into several, two versions of the drug, the last one of which looks like it's going to go to phase three now next year. And I was lucky enough to be able to present this work at the American Heart Association a couple of weeks ago. And bottom line is this, that with the highest dose, uh, this drug lowers LP little a 80%, which is just orders of magnitude more than what we currently have with niacin and PCSK9 inhibitors. And importantly, it was shown that you can get 98% of patients to under 50 milligrams per deciliter where the risk accelerates. So this drug looks like it's going to be first in class, best in class from the perspective of both of, uh, you know, getting patients to target and efficacy. And it bodes very well for testing the LPA hypothesis, which is if somebody has high LPA, can you lower the level and improve cardiac, uh, cardiovascular risk? And that hypothesis has never been tested. This drug can do that. 
uh, Ionis uh, has uh, created a subsidiary called Exia Pharm uh, Therapeutics, which has uh, given an option to Novartis to, to take this on as a big outcomes trial, and hopefully that will start in 2019 if all goes well. And we'll finally have some hope for our patients that, um, you know, that have high LPA and have had events that we can reduce their risk for this type of protein that up till now has had really no therapy. And of course, the way for this to really work well is clinicians have to check their LPA in patients. I anticipate a very large increase in LPA testing uh, once you have a therapy that's available. And I hope this will make clinicians look very smart when they can actually finally figure out the etiology of their patient's cardiovascular disease by checking an LPA level, you know, and because they'll find it in about a third of their patients. Well, that's incredibly exciting. And and uh, useful for our patients. I have so many lined up for that, that is, as soon as you know it's available, let us know, and I'm sure the patients will be coming in herds. Um, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Tamikas. It's always elucidating. I learned a lot from this podcast. And would you have any conclusions or summary that you'd like to make right before we finish? Well, I think uh, at the clinical level, uh, clinicians uh, should be feel better now about um, uh, checking LPA. Uh, there's now an ICD-10 code, so you can actually document your patient has high LPA with a real code, not column, garden variety, hypercholesterolemia. And hopefully this will reduce some of the barriers for testing because that is an issue. And, um, you know, I think LPA is a real risk factor. It's present in a lot of patients. Uh, if you have any doubts what, what the ideology of your patient's uh, cardiovascular disease is, that would be a good place to look uh, to be able to fully understand uh, what is going on. And with that, of course, will come the hope that we'll have a therapy for these patients in about four to five years from now. Well, thank you once again, Dr. Tsimikas. This has been wonderful. Robert, thank you very much. My pleasure. <music>